Tonight's topic, low self-esteem and the imposter syndrome. And I'll go into what those are and um, how to work with them. As I say all the time, human beings are, at core, more than anything else, social beings. Um, clinical psychology and neuroscience today has pointed increasingly to how the human mind is wired to connect and that all of our emotional stability and emotional uh, balance and self-regulation depends upon secure connections with other people. And that's why the mind is so com the brain is so complex, why it has so many different regions and why so much of the, so many different reasons uh, regions have so many different tasks and why it's essentially the left hemisphere is conscious and working with language while the right is unconscious and working with relational concerns, how we fit into the bigger picture of, uh, of a social setting. So human beings to meet this really important task of connecting and thriving in different communities. I mean, if you think about the amount of different interactions you have to have in a day, you might go to a workplace where people will have certain expectations of you, certain demands, there might be certain behaviors that are expected, and then you might go to, uh, then go to lunch, a completely different setting, different expectations, suddenly you're a customer, then you might after work go to a gym class or to a dharma pumps and what the heck is this and what's expected of me here and and then we might then go out to a supermarket and then go home and meet with a roommate and so there's all these different interpersonal situations with different demands and different expectations and to keep track of all that requires significant neural resources so to allow us to meet this, these needs, human beings are capable of what a great psychologist named uh, Bandura, Albert Bandura, called implicit learning, which means we reproduce the thoughts and behaviors of the caretakers and the adults and the peers uh, around us that we're exposed to in our childhood. We internalize them. Um, we look around at how our parents and teachers and characters on TV shows act and get esteem for, from other people. And we also know which actions lead to punishment, social exclusion and rejection. And Bandura showed that this is actually what so much of the human brain is dedicated to. While we're listening to ideas and thinking thoughts, but a whole half of the neocortex is involved with unconsciously simply looking at other people and seeing what how other people get love and esteem and social connection and what doesn't work. And we internalize that. And this uh, internalization that we develop creates what Freud called a superego. A superego is different from conscious thought. Your conscious thought is simply deve devoted to meeting your needs, helping you navigate through all the complex demands of your life. But the internalized ideal 
behavior that you note in other people is stored as what Freud called an ego ideal. It's kind of like a, this is the way I ideally would behave and how I would ideally be successful in the world. This is the 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 thing I should be aspiring to. And so we keep in mind this kind of idea of the perfect me that we're constantly comparing ourselves against. And of course, um, it, what it does is the superego, this internalized, uh, what some psychologists call the mago, this inner parents and inner adults, uh, create a separate perspective on life. And almost invariably, that separate perspective is not always friendly to us. Very, sometimes it creates what we call an inner tyrant, an inner critic, a judge and jury that we are never living up to. And, uh, but it, it serves a real purpose. Psychologists today call that, they have another term, they call it object constancy, and the idea is that we keep an inner mother, an inner father, or inner family in our heads, and that allows us to move through the world and to anticipate how we think other people will respond to us and how we'll be regarded and what we believe is ideal behavior. So it's a, a kind of a inner ballast or inner sense of moral absolutes, right and wrong, and it helps us navigate and gives us different input on the way we should behave. Of course, human beings, we're not ideal. We face real struggles, real challenges. The problem with internalized superego is it's based on language and instructions we got in, in early childhood, and it doesn't adapt to our different situations. So we're constantly measuring ourselves against ideals that we actually can't meet. I'll give you an example. When I was a kid, I once had uh, writer's, what I thought was writer's block. I just didn't want to write a paper. Uh, and my mom was, uh, my mom was a writer. She was a novelist. She had books published and was uh, well regarded in her field. And so I went to her and I said, Mom, I have writer's block. Now my mom was a Jewish immigrant and she calmly informed me, uh, I later found out that she was actually joking, but she calmly informed me that we Jews don't have the luxury of writer's block, only Protestants were allowed to have writer's block. We Jews had to get along with it and keep, you know, or else we get fired. She was a Jew working at that time in a, in a, in a Protestant advertising agency, and she actually kind of believed that. And so I, for the rest of my life, until I later uh, confronted her and she told me that she was joking, <laughs> uh -huh, uh, I believe that, any, that, that it was self-indulgent to in any way delay or stall. And so today, when I, even today when I have uh, assignments, I can't wait or put it off. I'm the exact opposite of the procrastinator. I delve in and I don't feel relaxed until I, I really get far into an assignment. Uh, my dad was kind of a very different figure. He too was an immigrant, and, uh, but he was a Russian 
self-sufficient guy who never believed in ever asking for help. And in fact, when at one point in his life when he got very interested in boats, for some reason he decided that boats were the absolute status of American success. Uh, that and skiing. So he, he obsessively skied and got interested in boats. Uh, and he built a boat in our living room. I kid you not, he built actually piece by piece a catamaran. And one day we dutifully took all the pieces of the catamaran out to Long Island Sound and we put it into the water, climbed aboard, and frankly immediately sank and had to be no more than 15 feet from shore rescued by the Coast Guard who were wondering why my dad had built a catamaran out of fiberglass. He didn't bother to even read like what kind of material you build boats from. So I also had this uh, deeply embedded belief that asking for guidance or help was uh, a sign of weakness. So throughout college, I would take you know private readings where I never would actually have to. I just would meet with the, the teachers and sort of give them reports on what I had been doing because the idea of actually sitting with professors and learning from them was distasteful. <laughs> and I still have that fiercely independent streak. So we internalize these ideals and these beliefs of what is appropriate, what is right or wrong, and they become really, really difficult to address. A lot of my dad's uh, beliefs, it took me years of therapy to alleviate him, myself from his definitions of what a man really should be, how a man should never show certain emotions, especially to other men. And so I had to find a male therapist for 10 years to create an alternative father and then internalize his uh, model of male behavior before I could allow myself to confidently feel and express sadness or disappointment or fear, etc. So a lot of these internalized imagos, these views of what the perfect human being or the perfect version of ourself is, which expresses itself in shoulds and I oughta, and they also constantly are comparative. Uh, you'll know when in your life you're in the presence of the superego because it will connivingly say, normal people do that. And then it will say something that actually is completely not true. Normal people don't cry. Normal people don't uh, struggle in relationships. Normal people, it posits this kind of Ozzy and Harriet perfect. Well, his mind does this kind of normal people never have financial struggles. And then I'm over here in failure land, and then there's normal. So it won't even acknowledge that there's. It's posting this ideal. It'll just sort of guise it in. This is what normal, run-of-the-mill people are achieving. Um, and so these maladaptive beliefs, they're adaptive in childhood in that they get us accepted by our parents when we try to live up to these uh, standards. But in adult life, it keeps us caught in maladaptive strategies that don't work in finding happiness with other adults. It leads to perfectionism, which is setting unrealistic goals and constantly stalling rather than 
being creative in our life. It leads to deficits in self-care. It leads to pushing ourselves too hard. And it leads to excessive caretaking where we put others' needs above our own. And then it also leads to uh, one of tonight's topics, imposter syndrome. Now, what is imposter syndrome? If you don't know, it's the failure to internalize positive views and positive definitions of self. It's essentially the inner conviction that in some way our successes are fraudulent or that a matter of luck that we didn't achieve, that we've somehow calmed the world and that at any moment other people will see through us and that we will be dropped and socially excluded. And really, again, for the social minds, that is the greatest fear of all. The greatest fear for human beings actually isn't death, as we know from studies, it's social exclusion. This is why people actually fear speaking in front of people more than they actually fear death itself. Um, So, imposter syndrome meets um, a lot of unconscious needs. This is important. The Buddha noted as to Uh, contemporary psychologists, that all maladaptive coping strategies, all repetitive patterns, are not there just to punish us. They're there because in some shape or form they make us feel safer. They make us feel less vulnerable. So, for instance, let's look at a classic example, worry. People worry. The reason we don't like worry is pretty obvious. It makes us obsessed, and we're all aware of how little we would like to worry, but we don't generally bear in mind the reasons, the positive reasons that the emotional mind feels or associates with worry. Worry makes us feel prepared. It makes us feel that if we can visualize something bad that will happen, a financial disaster, uh, we will somehow be prepared and it won't happen. So it's very common that when people get downsized from a job, they immediately visualize, oh, in six months from now, I'll run out of money. Because that way they feel prepared, they feel on the ball, and if they feel any sense of um, confidence that things will work out, they believe they won't be prepared. So worry makes us feel prepared. So we want to address repetitive habits that are maladaptive, we can't simply repress them because we're not acknowledging the emotional needs that these habits are addressing for us. We can't simply repress worry unless we we replace it with something that makes us feel safer. So, for instance, if we get downsized from a job, rather than worry about financial situations that will arise in the future, we could reflect on all the time that we were between work and we found something else and just hold that image in our mind. That actually will address the felt insecurity or we could hold an image in a mind of all the people that care about us and would be resources to help us find new employment, etc., etc. Now, The problem is most people think they do this. They think they try to rally, but the mistake that we make is we generally tend to do or address these unconscious fears through thinking. 
we try to tell ourselves, oh, I shouldn't be frightened, I shouldn't worry. And that doesn't work. To address unconscious emotional beliefs which are stored in the right hemisphere of the brain in the orbital frontal region, you can't rely on thought because the right hemisphere isn't particularly linguistic. It doesn't actually have very many language skills. But what the right hemisphere does respond to is images and experiences. You have to show it, you'll be okay. You can't tell it. So to do that requires some special skills which we'll talk about in a moment. The underlying thing that uh, imposter syndrome does is it, one, addresses the fear that if we become confident, if we express a conviction uh, in our skills and our abilities, if we actually believe that we deserve any success we've had, there's this unconscious belief that people will reject us that we won't be lovable anymore. This is why statistically in our misogynist culture, imposter syndrome actually um, affects women more than men. In the overall population, 70% report experiencing imposter syndrome, but with men it's only slightly above 50%, with women it's well above 80%. So it's because women generally don't get conditioning experiences of positive mirroring uh, uh, acknowledgement of their skills and our culture. Um, that said, men can also experience low self-esteem, which is comorbid with uh, imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome leads to dwelling on mistakes, um, uh, social inhibition, chronic stress, panic attacks, guilt, and my favorite example of it, which I feel very strongly, is embarrassment when receiving compliments. Anybody ever get that? So that's a sign that early on uh, peers or teachers or other people informed us that any form of uh, expressing that are a compliment is deserved or uh, not immediately brushing it off was considered to be hubris and grandiosity and unlovable. So we develop the tendency to be uncomfortable when people say, hey, that was really good what you worked on or that project you did was really uh, wonderful. It becomes very difficult to internalize any conviction that one's in one's abilities and thus people become more and more scared of taking new risks, developing new creative outlets. It just becomes very difficult to um, essentially uh, build on any successes. So change requires understanding these inner beliefs that low self-esteem and imposter syndrome and feelings of being a fraud are trying to address a conviction or an inner belief that if we feel confident, that if we feel any sense of acknowledgement of our skills or our abilities, that other people will reject us and find us to be unlovable. And so if we're going to address it, 
we have to actually speak to the emotional mind in ways it'll understand, which are not through talking to it, but is actually, or finding people who will say, oh, but you're so talented, because that actually won't reach the areas of the right hemisphere that are convinced that if we become uh, confident that we'll fall through the cracks, that other people will reject us, that we'll be unlovable. Images and held mental reflections actually, however, do work, but uh, there's certain things we have to understand about this practice. One, it takes the brain about a half a second to neurally embed a negative experience. So if somebody says something mean, rejecting to you, it only needs a half a second to happen for it will to be embedded in your emotional memory systems. If somebody gives you a negative look, if somebody says something punishing or critical, it only requires a half second. But to embed a positive, uh, esteemable, or uh, an image associated with security and confidence requires, get this, 15 seconds. You have to hold in your mind and an image for 15 seconds for the amygdala, the hippocampus, to finally say, okay, I guess you're right. Maybe I'm not as talentless and uh, lucky as I would have myself believe. Maybe I do have a couple of skills. Maybe I have worked hard for my achievements. Maybe I do deserve something positive in my life, like love. Maybe I haven't stumbled upon this relationship or this job by sheer luck. Maybe I actually do deserve some of the successes in my life. The brain has what's called negativity bias. We, it requires five literally positive experiences to erase a negative interpersonal experiences which why, is why um, so many marriages fail, and uh, also why it's so difficult to maintain relational experiences that because we are all primed to give negative experiences with another person five times the neural weight of a positive experience. So to embed feelings of... Uh, of um, any sense of deservedness requires a little bit of effort. Fifteen seconds worth, to be precise. <laughs> and that might sound very easy, but most people actually will find when they start to hold a positive image in their mind, it's so uncomfortable or they so associate that with uh, grandiosity that they drop it very quickly. It takes actually uh, more effort than you would suspect to actually embed a positive sense of self-regard. So, I'm going to, uh, in a moment, lead you through an exercise that will help you do it. The other issue besides the link is you also want to take advantage of what's called, um, oh, damn, I put this down before I, uh, what's it called? Uh, neural elaboration, I love these scientific terms, neural elaboration is the fact that the more brain regions you involve in anything you want to con 
commit to memory, the more likely you are to embed it. So while we do this practice, we're not only going to linger on images, we're also going to elaborate on these positive esteem by feeling what it feels like in the body to deserve good news or happiness or achievement in life. So um, this is very different from the uh, affirmation practices you've probably seen. They generally, affirmations rarely work because again, they revolve around language and language doesn't reach the areas of the brain that hold negative self-beliefs. So we're actually trying to um, take advantage of the way the brain works. So find a really comfortable position, and this will be a very short exercise. And just close your eyes and relax the shoulders, relax the belly, soften the muscles around the eyes, and if you can, settle the eyes like they're looking straight forward behind the eyelids. And then I'd like you to bring to mind a skill that you've developed through sheer persistence and hard work and diligence. Something that you didn't that didn't come naturally, something that you actually worked on. Maybe a creative activity. Maybe you learned to play a guitar or a piano or maybe draw or maybe you learned to garden or maybe to cook or maybe you do something in the creative arts or maybe a skill at work. You might not have been born learning how to work with difficult people and how to keep track of schedules and produce work when it's expected, but it's something that you developed over time. So hold an image in your mind that you can maintain of yourself doing this activity. There you are with your trumpet. Just hold that image and just ask yourself, how does it feel to know I worked hard and I deserve to do, I deserve this sense of confidence, this sense of achievement, this sense of acquiring a new skill that this wasn't an accident, that I'm not a fraud. How does it feel to really deserve this acknowledgement? And see if you can feel a softening in your belly or a slight smile on your face and hold the image in your mind. Really keep the image in your mind of you doing that activity. So let's put that one aside and let's do it one more time. This time, maybe 
someone that you've helped, someone that you've taken the time to call up or express concern, someone that you've shown kindness or compassion to. Just hold their image in mind. Again, an unforced smile and a sense of asking oneself, how does it feel to know I belong to the world that I act in esteemable ways, that I benefit other beings? That I deserve happiness, as the Buddha said, as much as any other being. And just hold that person's image, elaborating the feeling in the body, in the face. Letting it go. And when you're ready, open your eyes. So studies by Harvard show that any practice that we do for, I think their study was for uh, four weeks, begins to neurally embed itself. And interestingly enough, they did this study where people who practice the piano versus people who only imagined that they practiced the piano showed exactly the same neural changes in the parietal lobe. So it doesn't matter whether you're actually running out and developing a new skill. If you simply reflect on a skill you develop, you will neurally embed a positive self-definition that will begin to counteract the effects of the internalized inner critic. 